Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam episode 224, Gregory the Third. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So believe it or not, you've probably never heard of Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, other than there's, you know, thirteen Pope Gregory's big deal. But this is probably one of the popes of all the popes we've talked about who affects your daily life the most. Like every single day, the pontificate of Pope Gregory the Thirteenth plays some role. And with that intriguing intro, let's let's start talking about him. He was born in Bologna. On January 1st, 1501, his name was Hugo Boncompagni. He was the son of a local merchant, and he grew up studying canon law at the University of Bologna. He was not the most moral or strict young man. He was more in line with some of our earlier Renaissance popes who led a looser moral life. But in 1538, he decided ostensibly to shape up and become a cleric and serve as a canon lawyer in the Vatican. His father helped fund his entry into the papal service. It was a time when money could buy a lot, and the reform of the papal court hadn't fully been accomplished. So he attracted uh, some attention when he came to Rome, and eventually Pope Paul III assigned him to the delegation attending the Council of Trent, where he served as a minor official. When the council split and moved to Bologna, he went with the Roman cardinals and bishops back to his hometown of Bologna. And it appears there that he fell back into bad habits, and when he was in Bologna in 1548, he fathered a child with an unmarried woman in the city. Now, apparently, this action wasn't just a slip-up. It was a deliberate thing. He wanted to provide for himself an heir that he could leave his property to. And as unedifying as that episode was, when he returned to Rome, he does does seem to have cleaned up his act, but it's not necessarily the, the, the best thing in the world. In fact, by the time of Pope Paul IV, who was very strict in his own morals and, and the morals of those who served him, he was shown a lot of papal favor. In 1558, he was entrusted with several diplomatic positions, and sometime around then, he was ordained a deacon, priest, and a bishop. He served with the Pope's rather dissolute cardinal nephew, who, if you remember, was eventually imprisoned for murder, but that doesn't seem to have phased Bishop Boncompagni, who managed to find favor under Pope Pius IV, too. And he was sent by Pope Pius IV back to the Council of Trent to help wrap things up there. He was a firm voice in support of the Pope's views on things, and he won the trust of St. Charles Borromeo, the cardinal nephew. Now, when the council concluded and Bishop Boncompagni returned to Rome in 1565, the Pope named him a cardinal and sent him to Spain to settle the heresy trial of the Archbishop of Toledo. It was a big back and forth between this archbishop, between the, the king, and it wasn't necessarily a clear cut and dry kind of case. There's a lot of political machinations going on. And in the end, after a lot of conflict with Philip II, the negotiations over the trial ended in a stalemate, and Cardinal Buoncompagni returned to Rome. And he ostensibly was returning to Rome to vote in the conclave that elected St. Pius V, but he didn't actually get there in time. It was just a good, convenient way to kind of get out of this situation. Now, when St. Pius V died, Cardinal Buoncompagni was one of the names that was floating around as a possible candidate. The Spanish cardinals knew him and liked him, and so did the King of Spain, and he had a lot of influence on this process at this time. And there were no cardinals decisively opposed to him. So on May 13, 1572, he was elected pope. He took the name Gregory the Thirteenth after St. Gregory the Great, on whose feast day he had been named a cardinal. 
Now, the new pope was a mixed bag when it came to nepotism. He did indeed promote some of his relatives, not so much his nephews. He didn't use the office of cardinal nephew that most of his predecessors did. Instead, he named a, a competent cardinal whom he trusted to be his kind of cardinal chief of staff. But he did have a soft spot for his illegitimate son. That being said, Pope Gregory was a pretty talented and disciplined administrator, and he continued this process of building an efficient and reformed papal bureaucracy. And he worked pretty diligently every day. He worked long hours, and his only breaks really were for some exercise and for his prayers. Now, the first big challenge was to continue the work of his predecessor in following up the victory over the Turks at Lepanto. Unfortunately, no one was interested, and even Philip II, who was the key to the whole alliance, was dithering. The Pope tried to bring the French in to help, but they were facing their own issues back at home. Their tension had been building in France between the Catholic majority and the Calvinist minority, who you've probably heard of in history as the Huguenots. And the King of Navarre, Henry IV, who was in line eventually for the French crown, he had become a major Huguenot, and he was in Paris for his marriage to the King's sister. While he was there, a huge portion of the Huguenot aristocracy was present as well, and at that time, someone, we're not sure who, ordered the assassination of Admiral Coligny, who was one of the most prominent and powerful Huguenot leaders and a close associate of the King of Navarre. The attempt failed, but it sparked concerns of Huguenot reprisals. All these Huguenots are in town, someone tried to kill their leader, and then now all of a sudden maybe they'll rise up against us. And so the King of France and his mother, Catherine de' Medici, met together and decided to round up a dozen or so of the Huguenot leaders and put them in prison and then eventually put them to death. On August 24, 1572, on St. Bartholomew's feast day, that decision was executed, but it very quickly got out of hand. Thousands of Protestants, including most of the Huguenot aristocracy, were killed. The slaughter was one-sided and brutal, and the event has gone down in history as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Now, Pope Gregory XIII was jubilant when he heard the news. Now, he had no knowledge of the planning of the event, but when word trickled back to Rome that the admiral and top Huguenot leaders were killed, he saw it as an act of divine retribution, and he rejoiced. But apparently he hadn't been given the whole story. He thought this was a disciplined uh, removal of a, a real rebellious aspect of the French state, but instead, when he found out after the fact about the slaughter and the brutality, his mind changed on it. So without the whole story, he made the day the, a day of rejoicing. He had the Te Deum sung throughout Rome. And that was a really bad look when the word trickled back to Rome about the extent of the massacre and the thousands of people, some of whom were totally innocent, most of them were totally innocent, were killed. And he repented of his jubilation. It was a bad luck though, even if he was repentant. And so let's turn to something more positive. Gregory was incredibly generous with the city of Rome and with various Roman institutes of reform. He donated a lot of money, for example, to the Jesuits' Roman College, which was renamed after him and is now called the Pontifical Gregorian University. He likewise founded colleges in Rome for foreign seminarians and priests to come study, including the Venerable English College, the German College, and a Greek College where he allowed the Greek liturgy to be celebrated. Pope Gregory was a particular supporter of reforming religious orders, and especially the Jesuits and their missionary work. By this time, the Jesuits had spread to the New World, to India, to China. They were making inroads wherever they went. So Pope Gregory created the first diocese in China and Macau, and the first diocese in the Philippines at Manila. He welcomed the first ever delegation of Japanese to come to the West. They had never come to the West before. 
and he gave significant funding to the Jesuit missions in Japan. In the New World, the Pope gave permission for mixed-race candidates for the priesthood to be ordained. And he had to fight Philip II of Spain, who really didn't want that to happen, who wanted only European priests in um, the New World. He also had a commission work on and publish a collection of the entirety of canon law, since he was a canon lawyer himself, and this was a big reform ticket from the Council of Trent. But his other big work of reform, and the reason that he affects your daily life, was his reform of the calendar. And not just the church calendar, the entire calendar. You see, the calendar in force at this time was what we call today the Julian calendar. And while it was pretty accurate, it wasn't completely accurate. The problem is that the earth doesn't revolve around the sun in exactly 365 days. It's more like 365.2422 days, depending on you know current little things. It can change each year. The Julian calendar tries to accommodate that by adding a leap year in, one every four years, which means that it accommodates a solar revolution of 365.25 days. Now, it doesn't seem like a huge deal, but that little discrepancy between 365.25 and 365.2422 means that the calendar would be off by 3.1 days every 400 years. Which, again, doesn't seem like it would matter that much, but when you consider that the Julian calendar is named for Julius Caesar and had been in force for over 1,600 years, by this point, the calendar had gained almost two weeks, which meant that the seasons were slowly switching months. And if Christmas is meant to be vaguely around the time of the winter solstice and the Easter is connected vaguely with the spring equinox, you can see how this would be upsetting. In fact, the Council of Trent wanted to reform the liturgical calendar, but they realized that in order for that to work, the Julian calendar would have to be reformed too. So the Pope commissioned a team of experts who worked on the problem, and they came up with the solution. So basically, they changed the leap years from every four years to those years which are divisible by four, except those years divisible by 100, except those years divisible by 400. So if you didn't get that, here's an example. 1900 wasn't a leap year. It was divisible by four, but it's also divisible by 100. But 2000 was a leap year because it's divisible by four, divisible by 100, and divisible by 400. And so that seems to settle it. That seems to get it just close enough that the calendar won't gain that much time. So the Pope then had the diplomatic test of going around and trying to get everyone on the same page, saying to everyone, hey, we need to switch our calendars to make this work. And for the most part, the Catholic rulers of Europe agreed to this. In order to make the change and account for the two weeks gained, in 1582, October the 4th was followed directly by October the 15th. Now, the new calendar was known to history as the Gregorian calendar. It's the calendar we still use today. Now, out of distrust and dislike for the Catholic Church and the papacy, several Protestant and Orthodox countries held out against the reform. The English didn't switch for almost 200 years later. And the Russians didn't switch until the 20th century, which is why the the October Revolution actually happened in November. Now, all this generosity with Rome and these attempts to kind of build up Roman institutions and and generosity with um, the Jesuits, it did rack up some debt for the Pope, which led the need to raise some revenue. And he did this by trying to change and make more efficient the governance of the papal states and to confiscate some aristocratic property that technically was due to the papacy, but hadn't been collected in years. And, you know, he's going to enforce this and, and get a little bit more revenue. And then this led to various barons and nobles in the countryside not being too happy, and they didn't want to respect the Pope's governing authority. And 
they fought with each other and then they got their peasants to fight with each other and then they got everyone to kind of rise up against the Pope and one of the ways they could get back at him was by protecting various bandits who preyed on travelers and merchants and on papal officials and so trade then slowed and revenue slumped and the situation was actually getting pretty bad. There were a lot of bandits in the countryside. But Pope Gregory wouldn't be the one to fix it. In April of 1585, the Pope caught an illness, and on April 10th, 1585, he passed away. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by Pope Sixtus V, and we will talk about him next week. Thank you for listening to our Bebum's Papam. You can listen to the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.